I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Kelly Baden, the Vice President of Reproductive Rights at State Innovation Exchange. State Innovation Exchange is an organization that's dedicated to helping state legislators be successful. There's been a lot of focus recently by progressive organizations and activists on helping Democrats win state legislative elections. But what happens once all of that work is done and an election is won? What actually happens next to ensure that the newly elected Democrat is a successful legislator? Where do they find the resources, the support, the training, and the expertise to help them craft effective policy? Well, that is where State Innovation Exchange comes in. They collaborate with advocacy groups, think tanks, and activists to help state legislators craft and implement effective public policy. State Innovation Exchange and the support that they provide is yet another crucial piece to the democratic strategy of regaining power through winning these state legislative races. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kelly Baden. Kelly Baden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So I've been talking to a lot of people recently about the importance of electing Democrats at the state legislative level. Everyone's talking about it. It feels like, you know, and I think Democrats on on the left, you know, we're starting to wake up to the fact that electing Democrats at this level of government, you know, it can mean the difference between, you know, ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment Mm -hmm. in, in Virginia, for instance, or, you know, drawing district lines, which I think is really an important thing that's happening this year. But one of the things that we don't talk about is once someone is elected, you know, how do we keep those legislative gains? And, you know, what are some of the challenges that Mm -hmm. people have once they become state legislators? Sure. Well, I think the first thing I would say is that it's it's been incredible in these past couple of years in the post-Trump world to see all of the organizations spring up that help people run for office, right? The All of the amazing ones that focus on women and young people and people of color, and they are kicking butt and doing amazing. And as you noted, the reality is that once somebody gets into state legislative office, there is not a ton of support for them to figure out how to then effectively govern. Um, so that's really where uh, you know our organization uh, comes in and, and tries to help be that resource for some state legislators. It, it can be anything from, how do I set up my office if I only am allotted, you know, X number of dollars for staffing support, which which parts of staffing do I prioritize? How do I use Facebook to communicate with my constituents, right? Let alone, what are the policies I should prioritize? How does that fit into what leadership in my chamber is focusing on? How do I navigate those internal politics within my own party or caucus, plus all of the other kind of national political things that, that come into play when you're trying to govern at the state level? So there's there's a lot of factors that a new state legislator has to balance. And really, depending on which state they're in, um, their their ability to get support on that uh, can be very, very limited or very, very strong. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think a lot about those orgs because I've talked to a few of them, like Run for Something mm-hmm. is one that tries to get young progressives to run for office. And then, of course, there's Emily's List. And we get all excited about that moment when someone's elected. But, you know, then it, so there's kind of silence. You know, mm-hmm. we kind of leave them to it. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I and I, and I wonder, like, what is that like, the excitement yeah. of winning an election, doing all of that work, and then you're kind of left alone. And if you've made the transition from, let's say, the private sector, which yeah. I know a lot of them do, right, you have all of that support in place. You know, you have an entire staff or team that's working on a document 
your project, for instance. But what happens when you get into Office and you don't have that kind of support? Like you just need someone to help you craft a document, for instance. Yeah. So that's really, I think, where the role of advocates and organizations come into play. You know, on the kind of negative side, a lobbyist, a corporate lobbyist interest might come into play as well. But what we're talking about is largely organizations that do focus on supporting state level policy changes and working with legislators to help them on that, right? So that is the role also that that everyday voters can continue to play once they've already cast their vote at the ballot box to then work through those organizations and with leg- their state legislators directly to try to provide some of that support for them. And I mean, if you don't mind, I'd love to just share a couple of facts to sort of set the stage about what we're talking about here. Sure. I mean, there are over 7,000 state legislators in the U.S., and they consider collectively each year over 100,000 bills. Some of those are, you know, the most kind of nuanced, hyperlocal topic that you could imagine. And some are really some of the most polarizing political issues that we all think about and deal with on a daily basis, whether it's abortion, whether it's trans rights, uh, whether it's voter suppression, right? So the state legislator is expected to come in and suddenly somehow be an expert on all of these things at once. And Some state legislatures, which we can dig into if you want, are very part-time and have very little or even zero pay for their state legislators. And some, really just about four states, are highly professionalized and and function almost like a Congress would or are set up to be full-time, well-paid governing bodies. And so, you know, when you think about asking a, a new person who was invigorated by the Trump election and runs for office and gets great support and gets in there, and then we're like, oh, and by the way, you are going to work like crazy for about three months of the year. We're going to pay you barely anything. And then we're going to ask you to be an expert and take sometimes difficult votes on a whole host of issues without a ton of support to really make sure you know what it is that you're doing. So it's it's a, it's definitely a complicated situation. But I think the, the silver lining is that there are so many amazing state legislators now who really come from a social justice world, a social justice background, and really, you know, ran for office to help kind of restore the dignity of of, of holding public office. And I think those are really incredible people and they're making real change. So I want to talk about both of those things, about the pay, the salaries and what makes the difference there. And I also want to talk about also the need for bringing in experts to help them kind of navigate some of these legislative issues. But first of all, like the salary. So what <laughs> makes the difference? Like how small can it be? You know, I mean, what makes a difference in the range? Sure. So some are really baked into their uh, political philosophy as a state. So if you look at a place like New Hampshire, the live free or die state, right? Right. There is a very specific political philosophy that is baked into how they created the structures of their governing bodies. And so they are purposefully declared a citizen legislature. They have 400 members of their lower chamber. They have 24 in the Senate. And the the point that they espouse and that is written into their state constitution is that the idea should be that if you are a state legislator, you are very part time. You get zero dollars per year. Uh, You get a little bit of a per diem to help cover some travel costs. But you then have to go back and live as a member of your community and under the laws that you have helped create, right? So there's this kind of philosophy that like the government is is of the people, for the people, by the people, and you're not special because you're a lawmaker, right? And so that's why this kind of very part-time, low paid, and there's a lot of them because it really is part of their, uh, you know, sort of libertarian political philosophy. A state like New Mexico, similarly, does not have a salary for their legislators, although, again, they do receive a per diem for each day that they're at the Capitol. But it's really, I would imagine, barely enough to cover the costs. And 
you know, I do think there are real implications for what that means about who can govern and what kind of policies get enacted. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was the first thing that my mind went to. The fact that just within our culture, it's baked in that certain groups, you know, women or people of color, mm-hmm. like generally have less income. So it kind of goes in favor of people who kind of already have privilege. Exactly. So maybe somebody who has a white collar profession, like, you know, you're an accountant or you're a lawyer or you're a business owner that allows you to, you know, take take your shingle off the door for two or three months a year while you go to the state capitol and serve as a legislator. That's not a position many people uh, could be in. Or maybe you're retired, uh, which, again, is is has huge implications for the policies that states enact. Maybe you're, you know, maybe you're a stay at home parent with a a spouse who, you know, makes enough to, to cover the cost. But again, your kids can't be very young because that's a lot of driving back and forth, depending on where you live. It's a lot of time on the road and in the capital. Um, so I think sometimes these these legislative structures really do limit who who it is that can even run for and serve in our state legislatures. Right. Or a single parent. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. another issue. Yeah. So <laughs> difficult. And I mean, to your point about women, it was not until last year that we finally had a state legislature that was comprised of at least half women. And that was Nevada. And so, you know, it took until 2019 to eke out just above that 50% mark and have women be the majority of state legislators in the state. And I will say in terms of the policies passed, right, amazing things happened in Nevada last year, including the the Trust Nevada Women Act, right, a a protection of of women's reproductive health care in the state. So I do strongly believe that the makeup and the identities of our state legislators help bring about better policies for everybody involved. I agree. <laughs> Actually, I just did. It's funny. I just did an episode about a report that came out, you know, saying that women legislators are actually more prolific and mm-hmm. just generally, mm-hmm. you know, they output more legislation. They have more successful legislation just generally. So that's yeah. really interesting. Yes, that was a great episode. And, you know, if you look at the um, the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers has, is, you know, the, the key number one kind of women in politics tracking database. And if you compare the states that have the lowest number of women in their legislature, around 10 percent, 15 percent. Those are states that are pretty abysmal when it comes to policies that help and support women, women's health outcomes. You know, they're states that lead on things like abortion bans or high maternal mortality rates. I mean, all of the things that are bad for women. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that those are also states that don't have a lot of women in power. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, another thing that I think about when I think about someone getting excited about winning their, you know, state legislative election and going into office, you know, then suddenly they're called on to do some work on some legislation that calls for for expertise. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like right now we're in the middle of, I think today, the um, World Health Organization declared that we Mm. are officially in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people making these decisions would need a background or some information, you know, in regards to science and medicine. Right. And and it's not just that, like gun laws, for instance, you'd need some data science to make informed decisions about that. Everything, right, would, would need some expert to help them kind of navigate these things. Right. And I think part of that is a a real reflection in how state governments have changed over the past several decades and the kinds of uh, issues and bills that they have taken up that probably were not envisioned as their legislatures were created. So, you know, for example, the idea should be that legislators meet, you know, sometimes just in the spring or for a couple months a year. In some states, they meet only every other year under the guise that they would be taking on the most pressing policy issues of their state. You, you know, maybe education, uh, healthcare, like all of those kinds of things. And instead, where we are now is that we have state legislators who are somehow 
pretending they are experts in hormones and sports and and trying to ban, you know, trans kids from uh, seeking healthcare or getting information or playing sports, right? Like all of these things are actually pretty complicated, not only policy issues, but scientific issues. And so to, to suddenly have state legislators uh, across the country wielding that kind of power without necessarily having the real time to, to get that expertise and to talk to doctors and to talk to, I don't know, trans kids and their families themselves, right? And actually kind of understand the issue more fully before they take a vote. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a shame. And I think it's why we have so many, so many states now that are, are really uh, have created climates that suppress their constituents in a way that is is an absolute shame and an absolute outrage. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's on everyone's mind right now, obviously, is the coronavirus outbreak. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm in Washington state, kind of the, the epicenter of yeah. the outbreak, you know, and, and thankfully we have a great governor here, Governor Jay Inslee. And we recently had a package approved by our state legislature of $100 million to address it. And there was a lot of misinformation about, you know, what causes it, you know, how does it spread? What's the growth rate of cases? And I would imagine that you would need people who are experts in a lot of different areas to make that decision. Absolutely. And, you know, we're certainly not getting that expert guidance from Washington, (laughs) right? And so I think we're in a particularly unique moment about needing and relying on our state governments to step up and fill the void that that is being created by the Trump administration, who we all know is not trustworthy. And I think, you know, the COVID-19 and the other scenarios we're talking about are raising, again, sort of an interesting fact, which is that Republicans and conservatives knew about this state strategy and invested in it decades ago. So we are way behind when it comes to recognizing the need to build power at the state level and to support our progressive state legislators. I mean, the organization, ALEC, which probably many people who follow politics are familiar with, is is the huge conservative giant that really represents corporate and conservative interests and has been around for something like 50 years and is a 10 plus million dollar organization and really gets those state legislators as soon as they get into office and gives them everything they need to introduce and pass bills that are not in their constituents' best interest. And it really, we as sort of a Democratic Party or as progressives have been hyper-focused on national politics and on the national level at the expense of really building power at the state level. And, you know, we've, we've seen the, the implications of that, the, the ripple effects of that. I mean, you know, I work primarily on abortion rights and reproductive freedom, and uh, 400 abortion restrictions have been enacted at the state level just in the last 10 years. That is, you know, the kind of stuff that gets to fly under the radar a little bit until suddenly, like a frog in boiling water, we're like, oh, there are only, you know, five or six states, depending on the day, that have only one abortion provider, right? What are what are people who need health care doing? Where are they going? How how onerous has their state government made accessing their legal right to abortion, right? And I, I, I use that as an example, but there are obviously countless policy issues that we could point to that are unfortunately the, the direct result of us under-investing in our states.
Ginsburg is involved in kind of a big Supreme Court case. Is it June versus Russo? Is that right? Uh, yeah, June Medical um, was heard last week in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, which means we'll probably expect a decision in late June. And that, of course, is a case out of Louisiana that is considering a, a specific kind of abortion restriction that aims to really make it nearly impossible for providers to actually provide the abortion care in Louisiana. I mean, the interesting thing about that is, well, there's many, but it is that a very similar, in fact, identical case was already heard by the Supreme Court just four years ago in 2016, right before Trump was elected in a case called Holman's Health v. Hellerstedt. And we were successful in that case. That was out of Texas. That was, you might recall, the Wendy Davis filibuster moment, right, back mm-hmm. in 2013, uh, which again, I think was a real moment to point to around what states were doing around abortion rights and how to really focus on states again. And we were successful in that whole women's health case in 2016. But obviously, so much has changed just in four short years, including, unfortunately, the makeup of the Supreme Court. And so I think we all fear we're looking at potentially a a much different outcome this June from the Supreme Court. So let me just get this straight. So the the org that you mentioned, Alec, right? Mm -hmm. Your org is the left or the progressive (laughs) democratic equivalent of that? Somewhat. We, uh, We function with a very different operating model, which I can talk about. But yes, it, it, more or less, if you were saying if that would be a way to describe it. Yes. But again, <laughs> Alec is a, a, a huge, well entrenched 10 plus million dollar organization with decades of experience in really making themselves integral to the state governing process in a way that my organization is just we, we haven't been around that long. Right. 50 years, you said. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this case, so June versus June Medical versus Riso, what kind of support would you provide in this case? Just to give an example. Sure. So our role in, in around this case is really just in educating and engaging state legislators around this national moment. So we will be uh, working with state legislators to make sure they understand the importance of this case. We will be working with them to amplify their voices in the media to talk about the impact of abortion restrictions in their own state and how that relates to what the Supreme Court justices are considering. We are always working with state legislators around communicating their values, their authentic values about reproductive freedom and why they care about it. Uh, And really getting legislators kind of out of the policy conversation and into the values conversation, because I think that's where voters really connect with legislators. It's not always about a policy agenda A to Z. It's really about who are you? What do you believe? And do I believe in that with you? And how can we move forward together? Um, So that's a lot of the, the focus that we do. And I founded and run what's called the Reproductive Freedom Leadership Council, which is a cohort of over 425 state legislators around the country who care about reproductive freedom. And so we work with them every day to, yeah, to really prepare them and and just to amplify the amazing work that they're already doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, the Reproductive Freedom Leadership Council. So is it kind of a leg of State Innovation Exchange? Yes, it's a project of State Innovation Exchange. And it is the country's I believe, I couldn't find any evidence otherwise, first and only cohort of state legislators who care about reproductive freedom and abortion rights together. And so they are incredible. We have legislators as young as, you know, their their 20s who are new to office. Uh, and of course, legislators going all the way up to folks who have been in office for decades and are part of their, their legislature's leadership. Um, and so we've got state legislators who share their own abortion stories. We've got state legislators who have 
been nearly, you know, escorted off of their floor when trying to fight against uh, an abortion ban in their state that happened in Georgia last year. We even took a delegation of five state legislators to El Salvador a few months ago to go on a fact-finding mission about what happens to a place when abortion is criminalized. And so we took, yeah, legislators from Alabama, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, and Ohio, all places that are very hostile, including three places that banned abortion last year, and took them there and and really got to experience uh, this incredible opportunity to meet with and and talk to women who were in prison because of their pregnancy outcomes in a country that criminalizes abortion, and the lawyers and activists who are fighting to change that law. So we really do look at uh, our state legislators differently, right? They're not they're not targets of our advocacy that we're trying to move this way or that. They are our partners. They are people we want to work with to create the future that we all want to see. You know, so at this point, I really think that the message in relation to the importance of electing Democrats at the state legislative level, I think it's starting to register. I think it's starting to filter down, you know, beyond organizations and activists. You know, but my fear is that. This is due in part to the fact that the country is kind of in a political crisis right now, right? And that the interest will fade, you know, after the next election, you know, because it really isn't a part of the Democratic culture. You know, like you said earlier, as a party, Democrats generally care about national races. So how do you convince people to stay engaged and especially to care beyond, you know, the next election? What's really important for people to remember is that These state legislatures have so much power and their decisions affect all of our daily lives in so many ways. And yet for many people, especially those who are newly politically awakened, which is great, they they maybe are paying less attention to who their state legislators are and what's going on, you know, down the street or or down the highway in their state capital. So I would say that the the takeaway for me is that if you are into politics, uh, make sure you are, or even if you're not, you should be, but make sure you, you know, you know who your state legislators are. And you get to know them. Find them on Facebook. Find them on Twitter. Find them at your local farmer's market, right? And and get to know them because you can have a huge amount of power by by working with them directly. And you can really change politics locally at a time when it feels nearly impossible to change them nationally. Well, that's great. You know, I was just thinking that, you know, if if someone's listening who's considering running for Mm -hmm. office, you know, they've got their finger on the dial. They're about to call run for something (laughs) but they're hesitant. Like what advice would you give to them? Oh, gosh, I find your people and, and <laughs> stick with it. And, and there's many groups and, and organizations that will help you do that. And y- there's such an incredible opportunity to really change your community and change the face of power by running at the state level. And I think absolutely everybody should should do it or have a friend do it. And you can work with them to help make it happen for them, too. But we believe in in the character and the passion of state legislators and that that they can change the world. You hear a lot about storytelling these days in politics and the idea that, you know, being an effective storyteller is really useful in helping, say, you know, pass a piece of legislation. You know, and I know that's one of the things that your org does to help legislators. Do you help with storytelling? How does that fit in the overall picture of being effective? There's a lot that we know about how you engage with voters and how you connect with people and facts and figures super important, but also really hard for people to connect with. What people do respond to, though, is a a heart-to-heart and a a personal approach to something. And so we really believe in working with legislators to help them figure out what their voice is around a particular issue or around, quite frankly, who they are and why they're running for office. And, And really to rely on those values 
issues, when you are out uh, legislating, talking to constituents, talking to the press, whatever it is that you're doing, because I think that's where we have the power to make some real connections uh, and and ultimately advance policies. Um, we saw, you know, this is a, a con- congressional level example, but Congressman Tim Ryan several years ago, a Democrat, but was always anti-abortion until after several years, finally changed its position. And he wrote a beautiful op-ed about why. And he really credited the storytelling uh, that he had experienced with his own constituents, right? So many people coming to him and telling him their stories and their experiences. And that's what really got him to move the needle. And so, you know, we could we can talk facts and figures all day long. But for some people, you really, it's about who you are as a person. And that's what's going to help you move forward. And that's amazing. So Kelly Baden, thank you so much. I'm so glad that your org exists. It it makes me feel a lot better. Thank (laughs) you so much, Jen. Thanks for this awesome podcast. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.